Welcome to this new edition of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain, also known as AOP Educational Podcast. This is Isabel Moreno Hay. I'm the program director of Orofacial Pain at the University of Kentucky. Today, Dr. Tom Weber and myself will be co-hosting this new episode. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Hi, Isabel. It's a pleasure to be here, as always. It's our pleasure to have the opportunity to interview Dr. Fernando Exposto. Dr. Exposto is currently a postdoctoral fellow and clinical instructor at Aarhus University, hope I said that properly, in Denmark. Last year, he completed his PhD in health science at the same university. He also has completed a master's degree in headaches at the University of Copenhagen, and he's a former resident of the Orofacial Pain Program here at the University of Kentucky. He's also a diplomat by the American Board of Orofacial Pain. Dr. Fernando Exposto won the IADR Neuroscience Group Young Investigator Award. His curriculum is really impressive with more than 20 publications in orofacial pain in the last few years. Fernando, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. Thank you very much. I'm uh, very pleased that you invited me and uh, to talk a little bit about orofacial pain. Thanks for the invitation. And I'll throw in one more important tidbit, one of Fernando's most impressive accomplishments. He has the best facial hair of any picture on the University of Kentucky's famed Wall of Pain, the row of photographs of all the previous residents from UK. Uh, Fernando, you've got the best beard, unless somebody's beaten him out in the last few years, Isabel, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. No, it has not happened yet. Also, Fernando, I know the way that, that, that we say your name is an anglicized version, so for all of our Portuguese-speaking listeners out there, um, would you go ahead and just pronounce your name the way it's, it's actually said? Yeah, it's uh, Fernando Exposto. Thank yeah, you. I, I'll do my best with that one. Exposto is fine. So I had an opportunity to meet you, uh, Fernando, a few years back when you were finishing your program here at Orofacial Pain. And it's really impressive to see all your contributions as a researcher in the field of orofacial pain in these last few years. So could you share with us a little bit about your journey from the time that you graduated from dental school in Portugal and all the way to your current position now at the University of Aarhus? Yeah, it'll be a pleasure. So when I finished dental school, I was... Uh, really into prosthodontics so that's kind of what I started doing for the most part and uh, then uh, one of my professors at university suggested that I go to Austria and uh, study under Professor Rudolf Slavicek who had these uh, concepts and still has these concepts on oral rehabilitation and during the, that master's degree small part of that was a little bit of TMD and more of like a gnathological viewpoint so that triggered my interest a little bit in TMD and pain because I it hadn't been triggered until that point. And then after working a few years in private practice, um, I kind of decided that I wanted to learn a little bit more about pain. So I actually did the, I think in 2012, I actually did the mini residency in Kentucky um, to see if I it was something that I liked. And it completely blew my mind because it was much more than just TMD, it had all of headaches, neuropathic pains, all of these kinds of things. 
So I immediately decided that I wanted to uh, go and do this. So I applied and got in the next year. And then I did the two years at the University of Kentucky. And at that point, I had already been reading a lot. And I kind of had an idea that I wanted to do research as well. So while I was at Kentucky, I actually did um, some research in Dr. Karen Westland's lab with uh, rats and some models of neuropathic pain. Um, and then when I finished my program, it was actually because my wife had, uh, decided, had come with me to Kentucky, we actually kind of decided that it was her turn to kind of decide where we would want to go. Fortunately for me, she chose Aarhus because my boss now, Peter Svensson, is there, and it was kind of one of the few places in the world, I think, where she would be very happy with the orthodontic side of it, and I was very happy with the orofacial pain uh, side of it. So then I went there, and then I did my uh, PhD. While I was doing my PhD, there came this opportunity to do this master's in headache in Copenhagen, which is one of the best places in the world in both in terms of research and a clinic for headaches. So I took the opportunity and I did the master's. It was like a part-time master's at the same time that I was uh, doing my PhD. So I went back and forth and then I finished my uh, PhD and I stayed on as a clinical instructor with the students and in orofacial pain and doing my research on the side. And fortunately, um, I also have time on Friday mornings to do some of see some of my own patients. So I actually do a little bit of the three things that I've always wanted to do, which is I teach, I do research, and I see my own patients. So it worked out pretty well. That, that's excellent. You, you've definitely kept yourself busy. Uh, you've been a <laughs> prolific researcher uh, in these past several years. And one area of research that you seem to have been heavily involved in regards uh, muscle pain including some research on mechanisms of, of pain referral. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you, kind of taking a 30,000-foot view here, I know this is a big question, uh, so I, I might be giving you a challenging one here, Fernando, but how would you describe the, the state of our understanding about what is going on with pain referral? What are the mechanisms of that? We know that it happens, Clinicians see it all the time. You push on a muscle and, and somebody feels pain somewhere else. What underlies that? And would you say, do we have a, a well-accepted, a generally accepted model of this? Or do we have different competing models, different ideas of what the mechanisms are behind pain referral? Yeah. So, so the first thing is I have to say that my interest in referred pain is because of you in a way. Because you were the one one who brought up that Quintner paper from 2014, if I'm not mistaken, once, where he actually challenged this whole concept of trigger points. And I was kind of already, ah, this, this trigger point concept eludes me a little bit because you need to be very specific about things. And I don't really think that that's exactly how human nature is. So this whole kind of trigger point stuff was already a little bit eh, dicey for me in a way, in my personal opinion as a resident at the time. And then you showed me that paper actually, and, and I started just to kind of think more and more and more and more about it. And at the moment, so I think the first thing is that we don't really have a definition for what referred pain is that everybody agrees on. So I think that that's kind of a problem. Yes, when we do our DCTMD, for example, we ask, 
uh, is the pain staying under my finger or is it kind of going somewhere else? And we kind of say that if it's within the boundary of the muscle, it's spreading, but if it goes outside, it's referred. But we can also say that in studies in other parts of the body where they, for example, they press the gastrocnemius, for example, and pain goes down to the knee, is that actually referred pain? Is it pain spreading? So we really don't have, I would say, a consensus definition. Um, on the other hand, I think we kind of all agree for the most part what happens in the central nervous system. So I think most people agree that uh, what's responsible or may be responsible for referred pain is that there is convergence of um, the, 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 the neurons, the nociceptors, sorry, <clears throat> and that then if the stimulus is intense enough or painful stimulus, there's a masking of synapses in the central nervous system, and then this kind of leads to new uh, pain areas being under, say, uh, under uh, discovery, for example, and then this can lead to referred pain. I think in general, whether we're right or wrong, most people agree with that. I think the problem or is mostly in the periphery. So I think in that regard, then we have people who think that trigger points are responsible for referred pain. So there's very specific area of the muscle that's in a taut band and that is uh, responsible for referred pain. And then I would find myself more on the other side, which is that I haven't really seen a lot of evidence that these trigger points specifically exist. And as such, I think it's just a part of the muscle that maybe is a little bit more sore. And also, of course, if you press more, it's more sore, and then you may get referred pain from that. But I don't necessarily think that you need to have trigger points to, to, to do that, to cause referred pain. I think it has more to do with how intense uh, the stimulus is when you press on that muscle or the pain in the area when it's not regarding palpation, when it's just if the patient is chewing or if it's just painful, how intense the pain is in the area. Yeah. I, I think that's really interesting that you went into the, you know, the whole theory of trigger points with that. And I'd, I'd like to hear some more about what some of the implications of the data you've collected are. Um, before we go there, maybe, let me, let me jump to a study that I thought was very interesting that you were the lead author on, published in 2018 in Pain, the, stud, the journal Pain. The, uh, the study is titled Comparison of Masseter Muscle Referred Sensations After Mechanical and Glutamate Stimulation, a Randomized, Double-Blind, Controlled Crossover Study. Um, so I, I think we want to go into this study with you a little bit. Uh, let me ask you real quick before we ask you some specifics about this, though. Um, what do you think that we clinicians and researchers maybe get wrong frequently in our understanding of pain referral? Yeah. I, I, I don't think necessarily it's something that we get wrong because I don't think we know exactly what's right. But I, when at least I can tell you what what is the resistance that I get when I talk to other people who don't have share the same opinion as I do at least, and the the first thing is that and and we've had physical therapists for example who come to our uh, to do research with us and they're always very surprised when we sh do our experimental models and we show them that you can elicit referred pain without looking for a 
trigger point or so. So they, they're always, there's always some resistance to, to kind of that concept that you can just go there, press on any part of the muscle and with two kilos, so you kind of cause some pain in there and there's a, a high likelihood that you'll get some um, pain referral. So that's the, the, the first thing is that I think that we need to understand that perhaps at least our studies show that the more pain you cause, the more chance, the more the chances of you getting referred pain increase. And if you think about the way that we kind of look for pain referral sometimes and trigger points, which is kind of by macerating the muscle and actually causing a lot of pain, then you can see that that is a problem because then there's a higher likelihood that you're going to get a referral if you continue to badger that, that muscle until you get something. So that's the first thing that I think we need to be aware of. And then the second thing is kind of the, the way in which pain referral can go. So I think, for example, just as a, okay, the other day in the clinic, I had a patient with chronic tension type headache. And when I was doing my examination, got to the trapezius and the pain was kind of referring and they said it was reproducing their, their headache. So at this point, I think, and even the patient thought, that, so, okay, so my, the pain is coming from my trapezius. And I think there are plenty of studies that kind of say this, that if you get this pattern of referral to the head, then it's most likely coming from the trapezius. But we've also shown that, and there are other studies by the group in Alborg by Graven Nielsen that show that if you have an area that has pain at the moment, or if you have an area that has had pain, so in the case of uh, these Alborg studies, it was patients that had uh, twisted their ankle a while back. So what happens is that the pain tends to refer to that area much more than if you had not had that painful experience. So going back to the tension type headache thing, you can think that if you do have tension type headache and you press on the trap, the chances of it referring to your head increase because you already have that chronic pain experience, most likely because there's some kind of rewiring in the central nervous system that facilitates it so that the referred pain goes there instead of maybe your jaw or a tooth or your nose or whatever it is. So I think these things we also need to be um, aware of that that is not just if I press here and pain goes there, then the pain or the headaches that we're having in this case are because of the trap. No, it could be that the pain is only going there because you already have chronic headaches, for example. That is very interesting. So let me ask you along those lines, what do you think then is the therapeutic benefit of doing trigger point injections? Do you think it has any therapeutic value to go to that trap and try to anesthetize it in order to help with that headache? Or, or, or are we, what's the benefit of adding that type of therapy in our practice? Yeah, I think, I think it depends a little bit on, of course, on the specific patient, but I think uh, therapeutic injections have value in terms of number one, uh, cutting kind of the uh, the pain cycle in a way. So you're shutting down even for a short period of time, you're shutting off some pain. And I think in some patients that has some value. Um, on the other hand, if we're talking about uh, trigger point injections and the needling, I don't have a research that explains why these things work for some patients, but I could guess that in a way when you do or when we do that kind of uh, needling, especially dry needling, that you're activating the patient's endogenous pain system. So it could be in that way perhaps that, that, that it does 
working away. And that's kind of a little bit, in my opinion, consistent with the fact that patients, maybe things work for a week or two, and then maybe kind of the pain goes back a little bit when we, when we do that. So it's not like, um, at least my experience is not that it is a definite treatment. And I think we, we sometimes all get stuck with that patient that wants to come back and back and back to do those uh, therapeutic injections. And, and I think the fact that you're basically just giving a burst to the endogenous pain system for a period goes more with that rather than you're breaking up, for example, a trigger point. But again, that's only my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, I, that, I'll tell you, Fernando, this, this whole idea that you've described of, you know, maybe the... Uh, maybe this is pain following in the tracks of previous pain, right? It's not necessarily the case that you have a, say, a tension dipedic source in a trapezius. Uh, I think this this paper of yours is the first time I encountered that idea, and I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I hope we can see some more research exploring this further. Uh, the idea you just mentioned about, you know, maybe activating endogenous opioid systems, it, obviously we're getting a little bit speculative here, but wouldn't that suggest that you could needle somebody almost anywhere and get a benefit from this? Uh, almost more of an acupuncture model as opposed to what we think of as a trigger point injection. I would say basically that the, the more painful or the play, the play, if a place is more painful or causes more pain when you needle it, the better, if this is what we're talking about. And there is at least one study that I can remember, which I think maybe came out two years ago, which is by uh, David Yanitsky. And I think he came out in neurology, if I'm not mistaken. And basically what they did was they used TENS, which is also known for activating the endogenous pain system. And basically what they did was they put TENS in the forearm and they were able to reduce the number of migraine episodes that a patient had during a month. So I think if you... If you consider this, I remember that I was at the headache course when, when this paper came out, and, and the neurologists there were all a little bit uh, suspicious of this because migraine is not supposed to work like that in a way. It's a, it's a different breed of, of headache in a way. But the fact of the matter is that it was a pretty well-done, randomized, blind-controlled study, and that is exactly what happened is he did tens in the forearm, and it decreased the number of headache episodes. So I think there is some value to saying what you just said, that it doesn't really matter where you do the injection, or in this case, the TENS. What matters is that you're able to activate the endogenous pain system in a meaningful way, and you, you probably get some results. So going back again to your study, the one published in Pain in 2018, what questions motivated that study in order to compare pain referrals stimulated by glutamate versus mechanically stimulated? And if you don't mind giving us a little brief, um, you know, summary of your results in that study. Yeah. So, so basically, the the two ideas were, but one was that we already had some a study or two studies where we showed that referred pain seemed to be uh, kind of across the board consistent with the more pain you cause during the palpation, the more um, the more referred chances of eliciting referred pain you get. So, for example, we used two kilos and you had much more referred pain with two kilos than with one kilo and a half, which for the most part are below the pain threshold or one kilo, maybe around the pain threshold. So one of the ideas was that we wanted to check if we could do the same with another uh, modality, in this case, the chemical modality, which was glutamate, which is a substance that's uh, been shown to cause pain. And we also wanted to see 
if uh, it was just the pain or if it was actually the the uh, the, let's say the, the the force that's being applied because when you have the when you palpate the muscle you have both a mechanical deformation of the muscle with the force and you also have the the pain the nociception that's caused so we wanted to find a way to remove the the force from the equation and that's why we chose the glutamate because we're not palpating anything and then the other thing that we also wanted to see with this was that if in two different sessions we would see any changes in where the pain was referring to, which goes a little bit back to kind of that preferred uh, referred pain location that we were talking about before. And basically the results were similar to what we've had before, which is that uh, regardless of its mechanical or, or uh, glutamate or chemically induced referred pain, what it doesn't really matter. There was no difference. What matters is that the more painful the stimulus, in this case in the masseter muscle, the higher the chances of eliciting referred pain. And then at the same time, was that between sessions, the pain kind of referred very, very closely uh, in, in both sessions. Sessions were like a week apart. So I think, again, that kind of shows that in different individuals, pain varies or referred pain varies. So some of them was in the mouth, others was in the temple, others was behind the eye and so on. But within the individuals, it was consistent to the same place. So here's something that surprised me about that study um, is that the intensity of the referred sensation was really not strongly correlated with the intensity of the sensation at the site where the stimulus was administered in the masseter, if I understood the, the findings correctly. That really took me by surprise. Were you surprised by that? And what do you think is going on with that? It just seems like intuitively, if you have a stronger local stimulus, well, you're, you're going to feel stronger referred sensations. But yeah. it wasn't the case. What do you think about that? I, I was also not expecting it, especially because there's, an, again, another study from Albar where they had looked at something similar to that, and they actually did find a, a kind of a correlation between those two. We, we thought about it a little bit, and of course, again, it's speculation, because I, I, and that's actually one of the things that we are uh, working on at the moment is trying to address these, these questions. We have a few studies running about if we can modulate the um, the way in which we for the location of referred pain and we also have some studies seeing if we can explain exactly why we didn't find a correlation and the answer that we came up with is that maybe it depends a little bit again just on the central nervous system on the endogenous pain modulation so maybe there were some individuals that when we pressed it was enough to cause referred pain but they activated that endogenous pain system and maybe things kind of uh, weren't as intense, but it could also be perception in a way. Maybe some were a little bit more concentrated on what we were doing in the masseter, and maybe they weren't paying so much attention to the intensity of the pain or sensation in the other area. So uh, we, don't, we don't know, but these are the two things that, that we kind of, I think, wrote in the paper that could be uh, could explain that in a way. But we're having studies now that we're trying to investigate that. Well, definitely looking forward to seeing the results of those. Um, you have personally experienced injection of a pro-algesic substance in your masticatory muscles, right? I remember you mentioning that you've had hypertonic saline injected into, I think, your masseter. And if I'm remembering your description, it was not a pleasant sensation. Um, what does it feel like 
to get that injected into your masseter? Yeah, I think the first injection that I got when I because in our in our department there, there's it's not a mandatory rule, but I think kind of the rule in general is set by Peter at the top, which is that he always volunteers for new studies and new things. So it's kind of difficult for you to say no when the boss is 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 volunteering for everything as well. So, so my first injection was a glutamate injection. It was my good friend Akiko that, that uh, gave me the injection. And I can tell you that it was the most painful five minutes of my existing life. And I've broken my arm. On the other hand, I did get another injection of glutamate two weeks later because it was part of the protocol of the study. And it didn't hurt half as bad. So everybody said that I was a catastrophizer. So... So maybe it was that, maybe it was something else, but, but, but the first one was really, really painful. And I think with glutamate, it's, it's quite painful. At least that's how most people describe it. And it's very short intensity. So it's like five to 10 minutes. So we use it, but I don't think it's a very good model of myalgia, for example. Uh, on the other hand, we have been using a lot of NGF and I've also had NGF and uh, inject it into my masseter muscle. And NGF, I think, is a better model of, uh, of uh, myalgic TMD or, or just myalgic because you can inject it anywhere um, in the sense that it lasts 7 to 14 days. And most of the time, you don't actually notice that the pain is there unless you try and chew something or maybe talk sometimes. So I think it is a uh, – I think it's a – it's a substantially better model than glutamate. The problem is that it's really expensive. So it's much more expensive than glutamate. So that, those are the two kind of, and hypertonic saline is kind of in the same ballpark as glutamate. So it's not something that lasts a long time. And I think now we're more interested in things that last. If we're trying to model uh, uh, myalgia, then we're interested in things that last a little bit longer. If I come across a black market supply of cheap NGF, I'm going to be sure to tell you about it. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, along with the just you, you describing the sensation of having this done on yourself, it, it does make me wonder, how do you convince research participants to do this? I mean, yeah. obviously, it's not you, you, they, you get informed consent from these people. They know they're going to be hurting. Um, yeah. How do you get people to sign up for a study like that? Yeah, I've, I've, I asked myself the same in the beginning when I moved to Denmark, exactly how, and but things work out. So, so uh, I think between Denmark being a country that has a very long history from, because uh, I think in the 19, beginning of the 1900s, Calgarin started injecting a bunch of stuff in people. So there's this long history and tradition of in Denmark doing these kinds of studies. So I think that helps because people don't look at it as a very foreign and weird thing. Um, on the other hand, uh, between medical students who maybe want to earn some money, but at the same time also are interested because they're medical students, uh, we don't do so much dental students because there's some kind of conflict of interest with when we are teaching them. So we can only do students that are not being taught by us. So that kind of reduces the number of students they can do. So it's a lot of medical students. And then there's a lot of, uh, actually, I would even say there's a lot of older people because a lot of times we do age and sex match studies with patients and some of them are older and they participate regardless. And I, a lot of them say, I have, I've asked them, 
and they say this, yeah, yeah, it's because of the money, but also because I want to help out and, and it's something interesting and I'm curious about it. So we actually don't have that big of a problem um, recruiting patients. As you can see, when we did our pain study, we had 60 volunteers and I think we finished that up in like three months. So, so it wasn't, yeah. Corona has made things a little bit more difficult, but other than, but other than that, it, it usually goes pretty well. That sounds great. I, I think probably many researchers would envy your ability to recruit there. Um, you know, I mentioned these injections being painful, but you may have mentioned this earlier, Fernando. The sensations were not necessarily painful from this study, correct? Correct. Uh, so we, we've been looking into not only pain, but sensations for a while now, and that's why we have kind of a composite scale that we usually use in these, in these studies. And that's something else that we're trying to explore. What is the, is there a difference between referred sensations and referred pain? Um, kind of the hypothesis that, that, that we put forward in that study is that because of the very easy way in which it seemed to transition uh, between uh, referred sensations and referred pain in the same individual, that maybe it could be the same neuron that's responsible for that, and that could be wide dynamic range neurons because they codify for both painful and non-painful stimuli. So we're also trying to look into that and, and understand in which ways can we rate this because we've also noticed that there is a big problem sometimes with with uh, patients describing a sensation if it is not painful. Even in the clinic, I think we can all relate to the patient that comes in and you say, so do you have pain? And they say, nah, nah, it's, it's, it's something else. And I think in, in orofacial pain, we've all been trained to concentrate and focus on pain a lot. And, and I, I've been guilty of saying to a patient when I'm doing my DCTMD, oh, I'm, not, I'm not really interested in if it's not pain. Uh, so, so but, but the fact of the matter is that there are all of these other sensations fatigue, tiredness, soreness, uh, tenderness. I mean, we've thought of, we're also doing studies about this in our, in our section about what's the difference between tenderness, soreness, and pain. Uh, for example, in Danish, there's only one word for tenderness and soreness, which is umhel. So there's umhel and then there's smerre, which is pain. But in English, you have two different words. In Portuguese, you also have two different words. So is this more of a... Um, a semantics thing, or is it actually something physiological that go, that goes on? So that's why we we use the scale, and that's why we're also doing other studies to try to understand exactly what patients mean by that, because we feel that it could interfere in a way with kind of the results of your treatment. Because if the patient has a little bit of pain, but they have a lot of maybe fatigue, tiredness, soreness in the muscles, and you're kind of only trying to take care of the pain. If you help them with the pain a little bit, but the rest of it is still there, then maybe they won't report that you had a good outcome in your treatment. So I think these are all important things to consider as well. That is really interesting. And part of the question that I wanted to ask you is, so what do you see as clinical uh, implications of this study? So you were mentioning maybe capturing not only pain, but also the tenderness, the fatigue. What other clinical implications do you see we can obtain from your study? Yeah, so I think, again, it's the, um, it's the same idea that, that we need to be aware that 
referred sensations or referred pain that individuals may have can be elicited if we press on a muscle a lot. And I I think that we've all been a little bit guilty of pressing on a muscle a little bit too hard to try and find that spot that the patient is complaining about. So so that's one of the good things I think about the DCTMD is that it actually tells you specifically what force you should apply so that you don't go a little bit uh, overboard with that. And then the other thing that, that needs, I think, to be taken into consideration is that uh, it seems like individuals have different referred pain locations, but they are among from between patients or participants, but the referred pain seems to be pretty consistent within uh, individuals. So I think when we, when we have a patient in the clinic and we're not exactly sure kind of which way, I don't know, just as an example, the other day I had a patient who uh, had started with some pain in the tooth and then they couldn't find out what the reason for the pain was. And then they, they extracted a tooth of uh, number so 17 in the international language in Denmark. They're like in the U.S. They also use a completely different numbering system. And uh, the pain didn't go away. And then the pain started spreading. And I was in the masseter. It was behind the eye. It was in the temple. All, all this kind of thing. And then when I went and I pressed on the masseter, the pain kind of referred to the tooth, but it also referred to the temple. And then when I pressed on the tooth, and I pre- it also referred to the master. So the thing is that, yes, these things seem to be consistent, but which way exactly are, are they going? And when I actually, I actually numbed both the tooth and the masseter, and I had to numb both of them to shut down most of her pain. It wasn't just possible just doing one or the other. So I think it's important to consider that Pain will refer very consistently, but we also need to understand that it may go uh, both ways in a way, and 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 try to understand uh, that that is not it's not just maybe one source of because I think we're very used to oh there's a source of pain and there's a side of pain, but I do think that we're kind of getting to a point where maybe we're there may be a source of pain, but after a while maybe there are multiple sources of pain and we need to be aware of that. Let me ask you about that point you you made about uh, not pushing on muscles too hard. What do you think is a practical way for clinicians to calibrate their palpation pressure? Yep. So I, I guess the first one, the easiest one, is a scale, right? So you can just practice on a, on on a scale, um, and then the second one would be you can use, for example, there are many different devices. I, I think in our in our section we use the palpeter because Peter developed it. And it's easy for us to, which is basically just like a one centimeter uh, base that is connected to a spring. And then we have one for half kilo, one for one kilo, and one for two kilos. And you can either directly apply it to the muscle or you can just calibrate yourself. Um, but I think it depends on on exactly what are we talking about. Because if it's for referred pain, for the most part, at least when I have my patients, unless it's referring to a particular spot that is of interest. Say, for example, that it is a toothache that's being caused by referred pain, for example, right? So we have muscle is referring to a tooth. In that case, then I'm interested in the referred pain. But if it's not that, if it's just me pressing on the muscle and the patient telling me that it's referred pain, then 
I'm really not that that interested, which is I think one of the other things that we discuss a lot in our section is, is it important to have this distinction between myofascial pain with referral and myofascial pain with without referral if it is not for a very specific reason or if it doesn't change your treatment plan? So a, a lot of times, yes, I think that I'm kind of calibrated for the most part, but as long as the patient says it's familiar pain, I accept that because I think that's what's important. And at the same time, even if pain does refer, unless we're talking about a very concrete situation where maybe the patient has this, is complaining of a toothache and now you've found that from the masseur is referring to the toothache, then what exactly is that going to change in your treatment plan? You're still going to manage that myalgia, whether it refers or it doesn't. So I think, yes, it's important to calibrate, but... At the end of the day, I think it's well, it's easier to use your brain. Uh, well, so, you know, that kind of takes us a little bit into this realm of muscle nomenclature. Uh, you mentioned, you know, is there an important distinction in reality between myofascial pain and myofascial pain with referral, with spreading? So this is something that's puzzled me for a while, and it's that we seem to have difficulty nailing down terms for what we want to call muscle pain. You know, so you mentioned the categories that the DCTMD uses. Uh, the International Classification of Orofacial Pain uh, released this year uh, does not use that term local myalgia. It labels everything myofascial pain. Uh, so I guess I'll ask you to weigh in on a controversial topic here. And I, I asked the same question of Dr. Eric Schiffman at the University of Minnesota when I spoke with him a few weeks ago. Uh, what should we do with this? What should we be calling muscle pain? My, my I guess my view is that I, I don't care what you call it. Uh, I, I really don't. Because I, I think if, if we're going to be accurate, perhaps in terms of anatomy, perhaps myofascial pain is better. Because when you press on something or when the you don't really know if it's in the fascia, if it's in the muscle, for the most part, unless it's like a huge, I don't know, but, but for the most part, I don't think we can say it is in the muscle or it is the fascia. Uh, so maybe myofascial pain in that regard is better. But I think that as long as we all are talking the same language, and, and, and I think sometimes when we shift these things, we start talking different languages. So it, 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 it is important that we are all saying this is what this is what we need to follow. This is what we need to do. But at the end of the day, I, I honestly don't think it really matters as long as we are calling it the same thing and as long as we all know what that means. So as long as we know that it means my myalgia or myofascial pain means that with one uh, pressure or a kilo of pressure or two kilos of pressure, whatever it is, the patient said it was painful and he said it was familiar pain, which I think is actually probably the most important important thing in all of the things of the DCTMD is that familiar pain concept. I think that's kind of the one that's going to um, stand out at the end because we already know from at least one study that the commands are not so important. So we had all of these commands and ways that you should say things and do things in the DC. And actually, there's a study, I think, from Ben Alstegren in Malmö that's, that shows that whether you do the commands or you don't do the commands, you get pretty much the same results and diagnosis. I think if we, and we're actually doing a, a or starting to do a study where you can, we're, we're trying to understand if one kilo for five seconds 
is what defines a patient as being with referral, without referral. And my guess will be that it is not. I'm pretty sure that there are going to be patients that you diagnose as myofascial pain with referral when you follow the DCTMD and, uh, and or the ICOP. And then if you palpate them with, for example, two kilos for two seconds, they're, they're also going to be, whereas you have others that will not have referred pain with one kilo five seconds, but if you palpate them with two kilos for five seconds, they probably will have. So then what? So that's kind of why I said that it, I don't think it really matters whether you call it myalgia, myofascial pain, with referral, without referral, as long as we know what we're talking about and as long as you understand that if it doesn't change your treatment plan, then it doesn't really matter, I think. Yeah, I, I think that commonality, you know, everybody speaking the same language, like you said, is really the, the core of the issue with this. And I guess that's where some of my concern comes from with this is, you know, we have enough difficulty in orofacial pain literature knowing what people mean by the terms they use, right? Which is why DCTMB has been a big uh, advancement. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we can all speak the same language and figure out what we're all talking about. Yep. Uh, you mentioned NGF a minute ago, and so let's jump to another study that you uh, were a co-author on that involved NGF. So this was published this year in the Journal of Oral and Facial Pain and Headache, and it's comparison of pain-generated functional outcomes in experimental models of delayed onset muscle soreness and nerve growth factor injection of the masticatory, I want to say the next word is muscles. Yes, the masticatory muscles. <laughs> it was a good guess. So, um, Fernando, looking at this study, uh, I, I was kind of fascinated by the fact that you can experimentally induce delayed onset muscle soreness. So how does a researcher do that in a human subject? Yeah, so, so I think and there's many different ways that you can do that in muscles of the rest of the body. But for the most part, for the jaws that I'm aware of, there's only this one technique that is actually not, not from us. So we, we actually had Mikhail Kutris, who's, who's uh, working at ACTA in the Netherlands, come over because they, they developed the, the technique there, if I'm not mistaken. So basically what it is, it's like a metal structure that has a top part and a bottom part, and it's like a crocodile, so it opens and, and closes. And what you do is you ask the patient to, with, of course, with something to protect their teeth because it's metal, uh, to put that in their mouth. And what you do is when the patient is biting down, you actually open up the crocodile in a way. <laughs> and so what it does is when, you're, when your muscles are contracting, it's actually pulling them open in a way. So it's supposed to cause some kind of uh, tissue damage. You know, those things that we studied as uh, Z-bands and all of that. So it's supposed to cause that and release some substances. And, uh, and that's kind of how you, you, we, we, we did that in this, in this study. But I, that I'm aware of there's only this one way of, uh, of doing it yeah, in the masticatory muscles at least. So why did you decide to compare these two uh, particular models, the nerve growth factor, NGF, versus this delay onset of muscle soreness? So there were two kind of more research-oriented uh, questions and one more practical one. 
So the first one was that because they're kind of both good models of, of myalgia, uh, we wanted to see w which one of them could be better at kind of causing some changes in the central nervous system. Because one of the things that, that NGF is supposed to do, but at least in my studies I haven't really seen, is that it's supposed to start causing some kind of central changes because it, it also lasts a while. And what we've been looking at is that, yes, it's a model that lasts a while, but when you do something like temporal summation, uh, things like you don't really see that kind of either central sensitization or things like that in the individual. So, so we were trying to see if DOMS perhaps would do that. So if that, that's one of the, the, the reasons. And the other reason was that even though in ACTA they had already shown how long it lasted, we kind of wanted to do one study that compared them side by side also to see how long it would last, so which one of them lasted the most in the, with the evaluations that we do in terms of mechanical sensitivity and things like that. And then the third reason was more of a practical one, which was that if we thought that if DOMS is good as, as good as NGF, NGF is very expensive, so maybe we start doing DOMS. So that was kind of the third more, more practical reason. But it didn't really work out. So we're still having to pay for the NGF. <laughs> and that's exactly what I was going to ask you. So you were expecting, what were you expecting and what did you guys find in the end? Yeah. We, we were hoping to see that that the, the that DOMS would be as good as NGF in terms of lasting longer, which it, it, it wasn't. So the effects of NGF for most of the parameters was, was longer. And then the other thing was that we implemented this uh, new kind of way of assessing central nervous system changes, which is called activity-related activity uh, temporal summation. And basically what it is, is that instead of using or doing temporal summation in the way that you normally do it with a pinprick or with a von Frey or something like that, we basically did a movement. So the patient would open their mouth repeatedly at a certain frequency, which is kind of how you do it for temporal summation uh, when you use a pinprick or a von Frey. And then if there is some central changes, so if there's some kind of temporal summation, which is a psychophysical correlate of central sensitization and so on, you would see that the kind of the pain scores would increase as the patient opened several different different times. And for both models, we didn't really see a difference to the, the, the control. So, so again, both with NGF and DOMS doesn't really seem like there is that kind of central nervous system uh, effect, which again is a problem when when we're doing these studies because even though yes it is myalgia but then maybe the results cannot be extrapolated as well to our myalgic tmd patients and that's kind of one of the reasons why we're starting to move forward and we have a phd student uh, right now peter and i that is actually injecting ngf into in this case patients with tension type headache to, so so it's we're, we're kind of starting to see well if it doesn't work necessarily in humans in causing these changes, maybe if we do it in, in patients, then we, we'll kind of see some, some effects in that regard. So so sounds like there's more to come on the horizon. Yeah. We've been busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. Um, so let me ask you about the, the commentary that you and Dr. Svensson offered that was published in this year again in the Journal of Oral and Facial Pain and Headache. Uh, 
so, you know, the opera studies have been, I think, hugely beneficial for the orofacial pain world. Uh, they, we're, we've got such a wealth of great data that the opera studies are, are making available to us. Uh, and you and Dr. Svensson offered a, a, a critique um, about a potential confounder of the relationships among these chronic, uh, chronic pain conditions that we so often see as being comorbid with orofacial pains. And it has to do with sustained medication use. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so basically, uh, Peter and I were asked to, to make a, a commentary on three of the, the papers. And like you said, I think the opera studies have given us a lot of different, uh, a lot of knowledge and a lot of even different, not only things that changed a little bit the way that we look at things, uh, but also uh, at least for me, inspiration on different types of research that can be done in the future and, and, and so on. Um, but we were looking at it and seeing, well, what exactly maybe could be causing us to see all of these uh, overlapping uh, pain conditions in, in one individual? And one of the things that came in mind was medication overuse, because at least in headache studies, and that's kind of a lot of also what my research is, is also involving a headache. Uh, if, if we don't take into account how much medication a patient is taking, that's a very difficult study to publish because they'll, be, they'll say that you have not taken into account medication overuse headache. So, so it becomes very difficult for you to have a study on migraine or tension type headache without saying we excluded patients that were taking so-and-so uh, that, that fulfilled criteria for medication overuse headache, or at least that you put it as a confounder of some sort in whatever study that, that you're doing. And in that case, they actually hadn't done that. So that's together with the fact that there are quite a few studies that show that if you take opioids or analgesics, in this case, it seems like it's opioids more than analgesics, but like ibuprofen and so on, but they both do the same thing, that you are more likely to have increased pain sensitivity after a while than if you don't. And if we look at the way kind of things follow, if you have, say, TMD and you start taking medication every day and it starts lowering your pain threshold, so it increases your pain sensitivity, and then maybe something else happens, nothing tells me that you're not likely to get headache or fibromyalgia or low back pain or whatever it is because of that and not necessarily because of the TMD or even in conjunction with the central sensitization that occurs from the TMD that also lowers those pain thresholds. So I think it is something uh, that, that we need to be aware of is that it may not be such a straight relationship between uh, I have TMD and because of that, I have a higher risk of getting these. Yes, it could be true, but we need to be aware that maybe there's kind of like an intermediary in there, which could be excessive uh, medication use. A little bit like the way I look at, for example, uh, uh, TMD, uh, bruxism, TMD, and headache. There's a lot of studies that confound those two, and it seems like there's a lot of studies that think bruxism can lead to headaches, but for the most part, with the studies that I've read and, and kind of clinical uh, my experience, it, it to me is more like maybe bruxism can leave in some patients the TMD, and then maybe that, if it becomes chronic, then can increase the chances of you getting it. But it doesn't seem like there's necessarily a direct 
uh, relationship. So I look at that kind of in that in that same way, is that it could be an either or kind of thing. Either and, sorry. It never seems like there's a simple answer, right, to all these questions. So, so that's really a fascinating, fascinating thought for sure. In the same paper, uh, you also noted, and I'm quoting, that there's a need for mechanistic studies in order to advance the understanding of the underlying neurobiological mechanism in chronic orofacial pain conditions. What kind of studies might help us gain that understanding? So I think I think at the end of the day, it's a little bit like uh, Rafael Benolia also wrote a, a commentary on the studies, and he kind of said that there are two types of people, right? There's the splitters and there's the lumpers. For the most part, I think that we're we're a little bit splitters in our lab because we feel like uh, it is important to understand once you've kind of lumped patients into myalgia, neuropathic pain, this and that and the other, that within those patients that there are probably different types of patients. So, so there may be, for example, say that you have a patient that has TMD. There may be one patient that has a deficient endogenous pain system. There may be another patient maybe that has some kind of autonomic dysregulation. Maybe there's another patient that the big part of it is more related to facilitation of the central nervous system and so on and so forth. And the way we do that in our studies is, for example, again, we assess endogenous pain modulation through CPM. Uh, we do quantitative sensory testing. Uh, we do normally the German Research Network Protocol. We can do functional imaging. So there's all of these kinds of things that can be done. Now, the problem, I would say, and these are all things that, that we are trying to improve also, is that when you try and understand, because there's a theory that says that, for example, if you have a deficient endogenous pain system and you have chronic pain, then all you need to do is give that patient something that boosts that endogenous pain system, and they'll probably get better. And the same can be said for, for example, neuropathic pain patients that have uh, ectopic firing of sodium channels and things like that, and that can be assessed in a, a correlate kind of way through quantitative sensory testing, and if you give those patients something towards that, then they should get better. The problem is that there's a, at least one review that I know of that has taken, a systematic review that has taken all of those results, and it doesn't really seem like we are getting there. So it doesn't seem like there's a big difference between uh, assessing those patients in that way and saying this patient needs this treatment and then you give them that treatment and they get better. So I think the problem with that is that we are not as, we're not driving our, our kind of splitting in the way that, that we should. And I think we need to be a little bit more aggressive in, the, in that splitting in the sense that, for example, when we do condition pain modulation, we only assess that once for the most part. And there are studies that have shown that if you assess them two, three, four, five different times, you are able to doubly or triply split patients into some that have a little bit more endogenous pain modulation, others that have a little bit less endogenous pain, and so on and so forth. So maybe we need to kind of push the individual system a little bit more to actually get the results uh, that, that we need. But at the moment, this is kind of what we have and, and that's what, what we work with. And I think for the most part, it seems to be able to define the, the patients, but I think we're missing that next step in 
defining what maybe is the problem with the patient to the medication or whatever the intervention is actually helping them. So I think that's kind of the step forward. Maybe if you ask the lumpers, they'll kind of say, well, that's where you're, that's why you're wrong is because we need to take a more general overview and kind of look at all patients in, in the same way. But I don't think I, I can understand that for research, maybe that works, but I also do clinic and I could never look at a myalgia patient, a neuropathic pain patient in the same way. So there has to be maybe a a combination of the two in a way, and also in terms of research and clinic, I think, for things to, for us to get the results that we, we want. And that sounds to me a little bit like personalized medicine, right, or precision medicine, which is this term yeah. that we kind of all tend to try to reach out, so. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that th that would be ideally what we'd want, right? So, you, again, you'd want somebody to say, that would be very easy if you measured their endogenous pain system through condition pain modulation. You say, well, look, this is deficient. Here you go, take some duloxetine that kind of boosts that endogenous pain system and the serotonin or epinephrine and so on, and you'll get better. But unfortunately, the studies that we have show that things aren't that, that easy. They aren't that easy because maybe we're wrong, or they're not easy because there's an access to component, of course, that medications don't, don't take care of necessarily. We, we don't know. But yeah, that, is, that would be the, the goal. But when was it? Maybe a year ago, Luda Diachenko was at Aarhus and she was doing kind of, a, uh, was explaining that they kind of do the same thing right now. They're trying to do with genetics and precision medicine, the same thing that they're doing, uh, that they did for cancer. So cancer is actually, I think, a, a a success story in the sense that they, through genetics, for example, through genotyping, they can say, okay, you're this way. If we give you this medication, we know that it's going to be better and your cancer is going to uh, regress in, in, a, in a better way and so on and so forth. But we haven't been able to do that with, with pain. So, so again, there are these success stories doing these things in other fields, but we seem to always be not getting quite there for some reason again perhaps because it's a uh, is more cancer is a thing in a way and pain is is more of an experience so well fernando what else have you got cooking what what projects have you got it seems like you've already referred to about 10 of them that you've got your fingers in somehow so i'm sure you're gonna be putting out a lot more what uh, what's coming down the line what can we expect from you and your team over there just, just the same. We just continue to do, do work, and uh, we have a lot of nice ideas. I think that that we're just we're trying to get done because also with Corona again, it's not 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 that easy. Um, yeah, that, that's uh, pretty much it. It's uh, in in Denmark. I think I, I I really like living here. I have to say that. <laughs> It's it's uh, it's got a nice uh, work-life balance, so I think I, I can spend some time with the family and I can get things done. So so I'm just pretty much gonna stay here and uh, do what I need to do, which is hopefully some research and teaching and clinical. Well, it sounds like you're feeling the hygge over there in Denmark. So that is great. Um, I want to thank well, you. Doctor, yeah, go, go ahead, Isabel, excuse Sorry. me. No, I, I was just going to say, I want to thank you, uh, Fernando, for all your contributions to the field. I mean, the fact that you have that 
research, strong research background and dedication in addition to being a clinician. I think it's really, really helpful for us. So thank you for all your hard work and we are definitely looking forward to your next publications and next uh, research outcomes. So we really appreciate your effort and uh, definitely thank you as well for dedicating your time to our podcast today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot.